This is the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. It comes as no surprise. If you watch TV as I did this morning, and you turn on the Turner Classic Movies, you'll see 1942, Bombardier. I can't remember the stars I was watching this morning. 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, the Doolittle Raid, which was several months after Pearl Harbor. And the whole day is devoted to this day, the whole day today. 75 years later, do you think that the participants would have understood that seven, this, almost three quarters of a century later, they're going to be held up as, uh, as heroic figures? I can look around the audience and I can't see too many people that were alive on December 7th, 1941. I was. Yes. Guess how old I was. I was almost two. I don't remember much about the event. They told me about it later. I do remember Hiroshima, which is the end of it. Yeah. Uh, how do you assess Pearl Harbor? How do you put it into perspective? Why is it this important? You know, the country's been around for over 200 years. Do we? Why do we concentrate on this? It's two hours. Well, why do we concentrate on 9-11, which was two minutes? How would you rank Pearl Harbor? I'm asking, I'm starting off with the question. How would, you, how would you rank it in terms of its significance in American history? Well, you'd have to rank it very high. Just how high? Would you rank it higher than July 4th, 1776? No, you can't. You can't do it. The country will come and go, and July 4th, 1776 will be the number one day. It's a, it's a, everybody thinks their life begins with their birthday. Well, they have a point, you know. Yeah, that's the most important time in your life, so what the hell? Now we're talking about the second most important day in American history. Would you rank Pearl Harbor that, that high? What would be higher? Well, I don't know. What would be higher? I'm asking. Yes. Appomattox. Appomattox. End of the Civil War. That's okay. Anybody else? I'll get back to that answer, which is essentially correct. But I'm not sure it's it's you're talking about the ending. I would talk about the beginning, but we'll talk about it later. I only have till three thirty, but I can go on. You know, I've been doing this since 66. You just wind me up. Any other suggestions as to what would be, why would Appomattox, because it ended the Civil War. That means that if you rank Pearl Harbor second, you would be challenged because you'd have to rank Hiroshima first, because that ended the World War. So what is most important, the beginning or the end? It's, it's, a, it's not academic, but it's, there's a fine line between it and reality. I would say Pearl Harbor would be the second most important date, but I would have to qualify it with your answer, but instead of your answer, I would say Fort Sumter, the beginnings, but who's going to argue about that? You know, you know if, if you want to uh, assess the importance of events at their tail end as opposed to their beginning, that's an academic point which can be easily understood.
I don't care. I'd rank Fort Sumter uh, as more important. How about would you compare it to our own generation, which I know you all, you certainly are old enough, and I'm not necessarily singling out anybody, but uh, <laughs> not you, ma'am, at all, but you do remember 9-11. How would you rank the other surprise attack in our memory to Pearl Harbor? I don't think 9-11 is even close. Not even close. As Max said in his introduction, uh, it changed the world. 9-11 is 15 years ago. Fast forward 15 years from Pearl Harbor, and it's 1956. It's not even a, a similar country. Not even. Had isolationism, and uh, now we have how many bases? I used to think that we had 140 bases. Some students said, no, we have 800 bases in the world. I don't know how many. I've not counted the bases. Once I get past four or five, that's enough. You know. So I'd say it was the second most important with the qualification of the Civil War. I guess it depends on whether or not you think the World War was more important than the Civil War. And I think a lot of people would probably side in with your answer more than the World War. I think, I, I would probably say Fort Sumter would be more important. It was a surprise attack too, by the way. Yep. That occurred in October or September. September 8, 1789, right? September something. I don't know. Did you think it would be higher than Pearl Harbor? I wouldn't Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to argue. I think my birthday was pretty But that came before Pearl Harbor. Maybe you've noticed. So anyway, I don't think, I think it's safe to say, regardless of the historical tradition, that there's been nothing since then that has overtaken Pearl Harbor in shaping the nation. It may have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It may be a time in the near future, and I'm not surprised if it would come, judging from the popular culture, that nobody would care about it. That may, that may come about. But right now, they still do. But I don't know how many people between, you know, 14 and 35 are going to find this to be of great significance. They'll attach certain isms to everything that happened to it and they'll dismiss it as being this and that. And as I hope to get to it, there was racism in the deliberations between the countries going back to the 19th century. That's a fact. Um, Donald Trump, our president-elect, makes flamboyant statements that arouse interest and controversy. Now, he made a telephone call that roused controversy, but in the campaign, he said he wouldn't, I don't know what he said, but he, he, uh, he mentioned that he, he wouldn't, he said all these things, you know, I watched the campaign. You know, like NATO's obsolete. But he also said at one time that he, wasn't sure, or he would not mind arming uh, Japan with atomic or nuclear weapons. Now, you think that the, tai uh, the Taiwan phone call for 10 minutes with the president of that country uh, aroused the storm. That 
would be 700 times more critical and important than this call. And he's already, uh, he's already sort of compensated for it by appointing a very close friend to the Chinese president from Iowa, the governor, as a new ambassador. That's going to blow over. A realistic effort to rearm Japan with nuclear weapons. I don't think we'd see a firestorm. Well, that's not a good metaphor. But we'd see a, uh, a controversy that would, would rival that. Because everybody will go back to remember the legacy of old Japan. And we think that we have a bad legacy with old Japan. The, the record of the Chinese people in old Japan far exceeds any experience that we have had in Japan. <laughs> Not even close. But he said it. And this is the way it is. Um, the thesis that I'm going to propose as a, a working hypothesis as opposed to uh, just details. I don't want to go into tremendous details because I don't have enough time. And I think they can be looked up at the idea, uh, they know that they can be looked up at the ideas about the causes of the conflict and the background to it, it's root cause. I believe in root causes, everything has a root. Okay. Is as follows. The, this is like Mac said when he introduced me, 98% uh, of the uh, conversation controversy and so forth about the attack on December 7th has to do with guilt and blame and intelligence warnings and those kind of actions that precipitated the actual event. For example, just two days ago in the Washington Times, I like the Washington Times. I like his editorials, but I care about his obituaries. Two articles on Pearl Harbor. And they had to do with December 6th and December 7th and December 8th. The entire conversation about the event, almost universally, has to do with its immediate origins. Who did what to whom and who knew what, where and when. That's the kind of uh, of uh, uh, interest that usually uh, the attack uh, evokes. But my thesis is 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 uh, longer. I hesitate to say deeper, but it's certainly longer because I think that the events of that day were foreshadowed by generations and decades of various stages of animosity and of back and forth diplomacy, of literally decades of conflict and, and amity to 
twin aspects of life. And the events that led up to the Pearl Harbor attack are easily traced like a thread to the 19th century. That's when Pearl Harbor began, not on November 26th when the ships went out on silence. I'm not going to ever be able to unravel the circumstances of intelligence briefings and omissions and commissions and accusations that immediately preceded the attack. I have read them a little bit, but it, it is as confusing as the Balkans. And I have never been to the Balkans. Uh, the thesis is that the real origins of the Pearl Harbor attack are simply just another dramatic episode in a very normal type of relationships between opposing cultures and interests that can be pictured and diagrammed and, and, and uh, edited and examined centuries and centuries. It's, it's just another example of the typical interplay of international politics. No more, no less. It's not unique. It seems unique. Close the door, mate. I don't want anybody to notice. It seems unique to the American public because it was the first really uh, shattering uh, introduction into international politics, if we can sort of uh, qualify this by saying that the years before 1917 prepared us for Woodrow Wilson's war message, but that evolved. To, to have to this, for this to happen so suddenly, you know, as a day of infamy, to the, to the public seems like it just came out of the blue. And they were basically unaware of the diplomatic background to it. And the sudden shock of it and the animosity that preceded it in the, in the public's mind um, and, and Roosevelt's dramatic speech the day after, it will live in infamy. Infamy is a, a description which means, I guess, the worst possible outcome and disastrous. Is a, uh, a dramatic, uh, almost theatrical conclusion to something that has been simmering like a long fuse since the 19th century. And inside this background, the subject of China looms as the only really interest that separated the two powers. We entered World War II because of our attitude towards China, and Japan did the same. It wasn't anything else, it was China. Basically, the thesis is now, without saying that war is inevitable, that the, the attack on, on Hawaii uh, uh, found its origins in the late 19th century between two conflicting countries thousands and thousands of miles apart with opposite cultures, 
over the issue of what to do about the integrity and future of China. Between our benefits are China and theirs. And it went back and forth in a protracted sense. But China was the issue. Central. To the point it was the only issue. Japan attacked them between 1895 and 1941. The, the Japanese attacked China four or five times. 1894, 1914, 1931 with Manchuria taking over Manchuria. China didn't control Manchuria. They, they considered it to be theirs. That's a habit to have. They're historically doing And 37, they attacked Russia in 04. In all of these occasions, they never made a declaration of war. Really, the, the lawyers of the Japanese uh, uh, government weren't legally oriented to warn their, uh, um, their future enemies that they were coming. They never made a declaration of war. In fact, declarations of war, I guess, I'm, I'm just summarizing off the top of my head, are extremely uh, rare in history. Why would you declare a war? <laughs> it almost seems like an after-the-fact situation. And statistically, it's probably a very tiny percentage. But the idea that they didn't, and they attacked out of the blue to the American mind, uh, was uh, not just instrumental, but it was decisive. They were considered to be, you know, well, stab in the back of uh, people. And they were. They didn't declare a war in Russia or China or anything. They didn't declare a war on us either. We should have been used to it. The second most important date in American history that we that we had cataloged uh, for Sunday was, if I'm right, and correct me if I'm wrong, was I don't believe that the Confederacy declared war. Did they have any secret? No, they warned us about Fort Sumter. Now, Fort Sumter, nobody was killed. Pearl Harbor, 2,400 people were killed, 1,100 in one ship alone, which is still the shrine of the Arizona. Uh, but that, that surprise attack, was engineered by West Point graduates, including the president of the Confederacy, who was our Secretary of War before 1861. The idea of so this is the this is the point. The uh, United States and Japan embarked on a collision course from the moment the Secretary of State John Hay in 1899 and in 1900 issued two notes to all the capitals of Europe, including Japan. They were called the Open Door Notes. And the Open Door Notes, in summary, were efforts made to uh, recognize and validate Chinese sovereignty and integrity uh, with fair trade uh, 
uh, visions and with uh, ideas of protecting the Chinese government. I'm not going to read the text of the open door notes. Like many things that we did before, like the Monroe Doctrine, they were basically British inspired. The British had been using the open door um, expression for, for years. It favored them because they had by far the most of their those territorial enclaves or spheres of influence in China, which was carved up by Germany, Japan, Portugal owned uh, Formosa for hundreds of years, you know, which is today's Taiwan. And uh, you know, it was just uh, an expression of America's intentions versus the realities on the ground. The open door notes uh, John Hay, Secretary of State. I mentioned he was Lincoln's personal secretary, by the way. Abraham Lincoln's personal secretary. Were basically ignored. They had no significance on anything. They came and went. I mean, I, I compare them to the Monroe Doctrine, which was an expression of intention, not policy. Versus the Japanese program as it came to evolve in the 1930s called the Greater East Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere. So you had a collision course begun with the open door notes after we had taken the Philippines and we became a Far Eastern participant. And the Japanese insistence that they be first among equals throughout the entire Far East. I call it a collision course. I wouldn't say, looking back on it, the war was inevitable, nor would I say it was possible even, which is the lowest point of a prediction, I would say it was probable. And only until the late 30s did it become on a higher level of probable, almost approaching inevitability. But I think that the course that produced Pearl Harbor nearly a half century later was planted by John Hay, Abraham Lincoln's personal secretary. And it runs through, and it's supported by all the literature I've been able to accumulate and read. When Japan took over, Japan defeated China on every occasion that she attacked China in the 19th and 20th, all the time. It was almost ritualistic. Japan is going to attack China. Like France and Prussia are going to attack one another. They did 35 times before World War I. Again, it's a model of world politics. When China was defeated in 1895, Japan controlled subsequently and immediately Taiwan and subsequently Korea and, and, and parts of Manchuria. He didn't protest that. He didn't care about Japan or Formosa, Taiwan, and so forth. So the, the actual background lies within the political culture of Japanese society as it evolved after the opening up of Japan in 1853 by Matthew Perry, who was the brother of Oliver Perry, Lake Erie fan, younger brother. And goes to all kinds of stages. But if I can pinpoint the location of the problem, I would do it with John Hay and the eventual uh, militarization of Japan. Uh, I guess it, I'd call it a collision course. Now, let me read something by a famous scholar diplomat, which I think expresses, expresses the American political culture 
at least on our side. I'm much more familiar with expressing American folk culture than I would be the Japanese. I don't speak Japanese, I haven't studied Japan and so forth. I have an intellectual awareness of what they were like. You know, it's, it's something different than the general colloquial opinion that emerged on December 8th. It's much more complicated in society, but uh, in the late 1930s, they did join in Italy and Hitler's Germany in the tripartite factor. The Axis, that was the original Axis. So they were defined in this country as a fascist, highly militaristic society. That's largely true. But this comes from, uh, this is a, I'd say that it was a, a judgment or an indictment of America's role and responsibility mostly on what she did not do and why in the years between 1895 and 1941. It was said in uh, 1951 by the author of the Cold War document, he died just a few years ago at age 100, George Kennedy. And uh, he did this in his famous lectures which he produced in 1951 called American Diplomacy. And here he, he, he indicates the essential quality of the American diplomatic culture or political culture, which in his view, and I'm agreeing, and I, I'll, I'll ask you questions later on, is what he thinks the thesis is accurate. At least for this time period, the central part of what makes us tick or act in international politics, which was a contributor to Pearl Harbor. It wasn't a, it has, we had to have two participants in the build-up to the event. We, we, we did our share in contributing to it from the best of motives. And here's what he said in summarizing his lectures on the open door and the, the both world wars. As you would have no doubts in mind, I see the most serious fault of our past policy formulation to lie in something that I might call the legalistic, moralistic approach to international problems. This approach runs like a red thread to our foreign policy in the last 50 years. It has in it something of the old emphasis on arbitration treaties. Something of the Hague conferences at the turn of the 20th century. And schemes for universal disarmament. Something of the more ambitious American concepts, concepts of the role of international law, something of the League of Nations or Wilsonianism, and the United Nations, something of the Kellogg Pact. The Kellogg Pact became the Pact of Paris in 1929 signed by 62 countries, including Japan, Germany, the United States, that would outlaw war as, a, as a, an appropriate technique, signed by 62 nations, an American inspired by the Secretary of State, Francis Fellow. Something of the idea of a universal Article 51 pact from the United Nations, something of the belief in world law and world government 
finally, I mean, it goes on and on, but just let me summarize. It is the belief that it should be possible to suppress the chaotic and dangerous aspirations of governments in the international field by the acceptance of some system of legal rules and restraints. Now, what he did not mention in this paragraph was the open door. He could have mentioned the Monroe Doctrine. These are statements of intentions, abstractions, and they are considered to be kind of like you would call the cutting edge of our approach to the world. He said something of the League of Nations. It certainly is Wilsonian as it later developed. It's really puritanical. It goes back before the American Revolution. So this was our armament. This was our, our shield and sword, if you will, against the Japanese Navy, the Japanese Army. So the real clash between Tojo and Franklin D. Roosevelt, Henry L. Stimson, and Frank Knox, and all those people in the 30s, was between the notion of a conceptual idea of international politics, a theory of life, based upon the American Constitution, somebody said the Constitution, and the American rule of law and order, and an experience that was artificially arbitrarily transformed automatically into the international field. And, you know, and what else would they do? With a, a country that had an army that was smaller than Romania's uh, in, in 1940, you know. That, that, that's not that. How could Americans escape looking at the world that way? December 7th shattered that belief. That's why it's so different. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty, you know, would never have come about before December 7th. We, we, wouldn't even, we wouldn't even join the League of Nations. Our own president's concept. That is the heart of the origins of, war, of, of Pearl Harbor. We can go through all the details of the events that led up to it. We can look at the dictionary. We can find out. They appear on Jeopardy. Well, maybe. The next quote I have is from the book that was written by the great American historian Her Herbert Feist, F-E-I-S, who was a major participant in the government during these years and wrote the definitive works of the American experience in Second World War. Uh, including this book, 1950, happens to be coincided with the book I just quoted. And he also wrote uh, The China Tango, Churchill Roosevelt Stalin, The Two War and Peace, Pac-Fan Conference, The Atomic Bomb, and The End of World War II. This is considered to be, 1950, a definitive account of the diplomatic events leading up to Pearl Harbor. And I was going over it this weekend in preparation, and uh, I took down all these points, <laughs> as I went through the book, I was going to read to the uh, people, but I'm not going to do it. I just get, you read the book. But I want to quote one thing, which is his interpretation, and it happens to accidentally, but I suppose it's not an accident, to coincide with the analysis by the uh, diplomat, George Kennan, whom I knew a little bit when I was in the government. He was a, I mean, I just met him a few times. He was the uh, 
the head of policy planning staff, and he was on the Moscow Embassy from the 30s until 47, something, and he wrote the definitive telegram that turned American foreign policy fully around in the Truman administration. This is how Herbert Feist summarized our uh, um, our approach to uh, Japan. This is uh, written in 1950, but it harks back on the years immediately preceding uh, the Second World War to 1937 when the actual immediate causes of the break in Japan uh, began in earnest, that is, between war and peace. He summarizes our approach in the introduction to his theorem page book as follows, and I think it parallels the quote by George Kennan. George Kennan wasn't involved in the Far East, he's reflecting This fellow, one of our greatest historians, and still considered the definitive work, on Pearl Harbor uh, is describing it from his own uh, experience. And he knew all the participants, including the president, firsthand. The president, one week after the quarantine speech, which was made in Charlottesville in 1937, from quarantine aggression. That, that, that actually expression itself is almost symptomatic of the mindset of quarantine. What are you doing in quarantine? You don't let any people into the house but you don't eradicate the disease. Anyway, the quarantine speech saw fit to quiet suspicions that were about to enter an attack which might lead to war. In a radio address on October 12th, the president said, the purpose of this conference, the Brussels conference in 1937, to see what to do about Japan, was uh, 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 will be to seek by agreement a solution to the present, present situation in China. In efforts to find that solution, it's our purpose to cooperate with the other signatories to the Nine Power Treaty, which was signed in 1922, which uh, guaranteed uh, the integrity of China uh, after the Washington Conference, able to assemble, including China and Japan. This was matched by words which Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister, addressed at the same time in the House of Commons. Chamberlain, who was well known for not projecting force, but for looking upon international uh, norms, and finally appeasement. I suggest that it is altogether, this is Neville Chamberlain, a mistake to go into this conference talking about economic sanctions, economic pressure and force. We are here to make peace, not here to extend the conflict. Okay, end quote. Shortly before the conference convened, the American and British governments Again, swapped views. Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden sent a note October 19th to Secretary Hall stating that either watchful waiting or moral condemnation would have any effect. This is a British uh, effort to uh, inspire the Americans to do more than what he called um, watchful waiting and moral condemnation, which summarizes American policy is, is the heart of the open door notes. A note.
the extension of active aid to China, which we are underdoing, under underwriting, and the disruption of Japanese economic life might be effective. Chamberlain's analysis continued that these measures would be hard and dangerous. They could not be effective at once. Uh, therefore, his note concluded, before entering on this course, countries would want mutual assurances that they would come together to each other's defense. That is an alliance, not part of the American vocabulary. This would not only give them needed protection, but be a sign of joint strength that might cause Japan to yield. Basically, as summarized by Herbert Fikes members, the Americans had a program but they did not have a policy. They were content to, uh, to assert generalities and abstractions, but they had no intention and had <coughs> absolutely ran far away from any capability or interest to do something about their abstractions. How our Secretary of State, Corla Hall, did not dispute this analysis, but he again made clear that the American government did not think the conference should discuss sanctions. It per, its purpose, this is Brussels, 1937, the last chance, as this author put it, for, to, to avoid war. Its purpose should be, Hall answered, to find a solution by agreement, not by force. And again, he rejected the imputation coming from London and Paris that the lead was ours. The lead was Europe's. They're the ones that had colonies. The Dutch had the East Indies. France had Indochina. Britain had Hong Kong and Singapore and Malaya. These were all the objects of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Don't forget, the attack, the attack on Pearl Harbor was two hours long. It was a raid. Hit and go back. The, the, the attacks that came subsequently, within days, on the Philippines, which is our colony, Malaya, Indochina, which they had already occupied at least half of it by 1940, the Dutch East Indies, Singapore, the fall of Singapore, the worst disaster for all occupations that, that lasted the duration of the war. That was the Japanese objective. They didn't want to attack San Francisco, and, and never could. They, they spent two hours in Hawaii, and that was the end of that. The advice given Cordell Hall to Norman Davis, our delegate in Brussels in 1937, was in accord with these ideas. His aim, the president told him before departure, should be to mobilize the moral force of the nations who wished peace, and while doing so, to, in FDR's words to this delegate, to observe, quote, observe closely the trend of public opinion in the United States and to take full account of it. Davis, end quote, Feist concludes, though dissatisfied with his part, took care not to forget the president's advice. In, in opening his section on the introduction to the Brussels Conference of 37, he, Feist concludes that the conference was a funeral rather than a wake, that, rather than a bird, I'm sorry, a funeral rather than a bird. It was called in tribute to a mood that was passed and to pledges that were breaking. 
the participants, nine parties, nine countries are party of the uh, of the Washington Naval Disarmament Conference, were without a common program and failed to form one. So, with that background, uh, being a part of the historical uh, participation in the theoretical uh, attitude, at least, of the United States. What is the record of the uh, diplomacy that led up to the Pearl Harbor attack? Now, within, you know, 45 minutes, I'm not going to go into uh, tremendous detail because probably it would be kind of, uh, you know, obscure or just supporting of the uh, trends and easily uh, researched, easily understood. But if I could just sort of close my eyes and summarize the results of the readings that I've done and the uh, general um, nature of the uh, of the uh, of the background to. December 7th, 1941. I would have to say that the uh, theoretical basis over China between the two countries was a set and fixed phenomenon which never wavered. Even as late as the months before Pearl Harbor, we were still trying to figure out all kinds of abstractions. We had no attention whatsoever to to uh, do anything offensive or military, we couldn't. We didn't even have the capability to go how many thousands of miles over the party. So that was set. That having been said, it's it's amazing how the first the first point really is that it's quite amazing to see. We, we think we're divided now. And in fact, that is a very much of a cliche in discussing the Trump presidency and the campaign that, it, that produced it over the past years, a divided nation. The idea of um, what to do about Japan, and I, I, and I know as much as a little about the Japanese cabinet itself and the Japanese governmental situations to say that the same phenomena riddled them as well, was that through this, through this entire period of nearly half a century, there was never, at least certainly, certainly for both governments, I would say, there was never a clear and consistent consensus among both governments as to how to proceed. They moved about from administration to administration, from government to government, from period of time to period of time, uncertain as to what would be the final result of how to deal with one another. You could say there was nothing in the um, archives of either of the two participants that would approach a Mein Kampf. That is a Nazi-style, deliberate, well-conceived, well in advance, of the event as to how to behave. And that is also true of the Japanese as well. 
there were periods of time. Now, Theodore Roosevelt was the arbitrator, the the, uh, the conciliator between Japan and Russia in 1905 in Atlanta. He received a Nobel Peace Prize, and he was well recognized. The Japanese grumbled a little bit because they had to give up half of an island. They got what they wanted. And uh, the idea of uh, possibility of a, a true and stable relationship was never really abandoned by either side until the very, very last stages of the event. Um, let me see if I can demonstrate this with a quote. I don't know. I don't want to do too much of this, but the, well, maybe this will help. And that is true of Japan as well. The, the 1930s, the period of time immediately prior to uh, the Second World War, when Japan's army controlled the government by increments, uh, was a period of tremendous turbulence and of unrest in Japanese uh, politics. Assassinations took place by the tens. It was, it was a, a, a government by assassination. I don't know how many there were in the 30s, probably dozens of, 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 of uh, there was some joke that went around in 1939 or something like that to the uh, Prime Minister of Japan, whose name was Prince Kamayak, who had to leave uh, his cabinet dissolved uh, in October 41 and was succeeded by Tojo. That was when war became inevitable. But he, he honestly sought a peaceful solution to the, to the rivalry. There was a joke going around that nobody would ever want to travel in the Prime Minister's car because there's going to certainly someday be a bomb that's going to kill him. And nobody would want to visit his, his estate because it was, surround, it was actually surrounded by uh, barricades. The Prime Minister. Prime Ministers in Japan were assassinated. I, I can't try to make that they were throughout this time period. There was tremendous uh, tremendous uh, dispute uh, in, in both societies. The American dispute did not take on the form of assassinations and so forth, but it did take on the form of confusions and uh, uncertainties. Uh, let's see. This was as late as uh, 1939, when the United States was still trying, this was as late as November, still trying to figure out what kind of a response it should finally make to bring to a, a, a closure the relationships with Japan, which had gone back and forth for generations. This is how Herbert Feist summarizes it. During the last few days, this is immediately prior to Pearl Harbor, during the last few days of somber waiting, the president faced three entwined questions. And he didn't know the answer. This latest November, December. First, he promised the British and Dutch that the United States would join them if Japanese forces attacked their territories or crossed certain bounds. Should he actually form an alliance, which was anathema? Second, should he so warn Japan, openly or secretly, that they were going to do that? There was give a notice to Japan, which would be kind of a diplomatic pearl harbor. That is, get militarily involved and say, this is, don't cross this line. Third, should he inform Congress about the fast coming crisis and the action that he proposed to take? 
the president, Fleiss relates, at one time or another was on the point of doing each or all of these things. After listening to Secretary Hall, most especially, he did none of them. His mind could not settle on any program that seemed to fit the many uncalculable, un I can't pronounce this word, confusing angles of the situation until the objects of the Japanese military movement that was underway became clear because they knew that Japanese were militarily moving. They did not know where. It was hard to know what action was essential and what Congress and the people would approve. This is Franklin Roosevelt days before Pearl Harbor, according to the number one uh, participation participant of the uh, of the time. And what Congress and the people would approve. And in the event that Japan struck in the Philippines, Guam, or Hawaii, he would not have to argue with those who still believe that the United States should take no part in foreign wars. It was best, President concluded, to wait until the event itself dramatized the danger and mark the response. Japan, in other words, vice goes on, was left not only to strike the first blow, but to decide as well whether in what way the issue of war or peace was brought before the United States. This course, that is, to do nothing, lessened the risk of blunder and costly confusion at the instant hour, but it caused the growth as the American people learned more of what had taken place before the Japanese attack, that they had, of the American people, of a sense that they had been led in ignorance. Which, which is true, that the ignorance wasn't anything deliberately contrived to, to baffle the public. It was an honest ignorance as to what the intentions of the Japanese were and what were the capacities of the United States to respond. Um, I'm going to close shortly, but because I want to give uh, I know what I've done is just to paint a background picture I have not addressed, which is probably the thing that's mostly on my mind is, was, did Roosevelt really do this? And the answer is no. But, you know, that's, that's not what he was dying. Uh, I think the answer is no. But um, to, to underscore, as opposed to a conspirational approach, that both sides were intent on doing something uh, deliberately for a very long time and they pursued it without any kind of deviation. That is not the cause of the war. That is not the background of Pearl Harbor. The background of Pearl Harbor is ignorance, confusion, uncertainty, uh, blunders. It's a story of two nations who were antagonistic about their objections so they had really no idea until until the later stages of 1941, one felt that he was forced, he or she was forced into a corner. That's my read of it. Uh, I, I, I would imagine that kind of an assessment. My actual interest is mostly, when I teach my classes, mostly on World War I. That would describe the period that led up to uh, August 1914 as well. And I would suspect that that kind of analysis or the conclusion would underwrite the uh, origins of, of most wars. 
Now, Hitler wanted to do all the things that he eventually did, and he, he laid it down in jail in 1923. But even the Japanese is, not to speak of Italy, but they were doing anymore. But, uh, and in 1939, Hitler did exactly as he planned. His his allies, the Japanese, were, were allies in name only. Hitler was more surprised about the attack on Pearl Harbor than was Roosevelt. And as a generality, in terms of uh, a longer-term background, if I might just quickly add this, despite the fact there was no doubt that the geopolitical situation in the Japanese islands eventually forced them to seek outlets for their resources if they were expected to be a great power. And they did expect to be a great power. They were usually called the Prussians of Asia in the 19th century, kind of benignly. But uh, if they intended to feed the population and to uh, mobilize it and to have any kind of uh, Activity, they would need a continuation of the resources that they were they were used to. During the entire time, up to July of 1941, the United States had been feeding the war machine of Japan to do all these things it did in China and eventually in the rest of the Pacific with our resources. That's one of the things that came to the haunt of Roosevelt and so forth. We were making it possible. Japan got 80% of its oil from the American well. Got most of its iron ore, most of its scrap iron. Up to months before Pearl Harbor. We were, that's, that's how confused and sort of uncertain. And finally, when Franklin Roosevelt froze and the term to freeze came into the vocabulary in 41, all Japanese assets in July 25th, 1941, he cut off all their oil, all, most 80% of their oil, most of their scrap, uh, iron ore, and other kinds of, he had done it before, but only on a temporary and a uh, half-hearted basis. To me, and it's, it's endorsed by the authors that I read as well, to me, July 25th, 1941, was Japan's Pearl Harbor. They, they were now put on notice that eventually they would run out of the things that they needed to support their population and their uh, livelihood. And uh, at that point, from July until the attack itself, we could speak of war as being, if not inevitable, an almost absolute certainty. And we call them sanctions today. But the economic instrument of policy was employed so forcefully by Roosevelt in, in July 41 that it was really I think I would have to say it was really a causeless valley, the cause of war. But I know I haven't summarized it adequately, uh, but I was going to mention that the Japanese worldview, despite 
their, their, their fixed intention. The Japanese worldview went through quite drastic uh, changes uh, in, in the aftermath of uh, the First World War. During the 1920s, when Japan had a democratically elected government, as did Germany, the Weimar Republic, it adhered to almost all the, uh, the uh, strictures of international politics. It was a member of the League that walked out in 1933. It supported uh, diplomacy. It had civilian governments. It signed the American-inspired outlaw war, Pact of Paris, the Pact of Outlaw War. And in terms of its relationships with the United States, it were perfectly normal. You know, uh, then the worldview went out, went through, I'm making a very broad generalization, broad summary, uh, a complete 180 degree reversal after the Great Depression and the growing influence of the army, the, the multiple assassinations of prime ministers and heads of government and other departmental, and the growing uh, economic depression of Japan, the gradual evolution of the government into military-based governments based on the army, and the growing closeness of Japanese diplomacy, especially under their crazy, people call him crazy, and I think he was fairly insane, uh, Matsuoko was his name, and he was a, a foreign minister of Japan during most of this time period. They basically abandoned the worldview that they held in the 1920s and adopted a society based upon the primary interests of the military and a quasi-fascistic quasi uh, approach toward life. So in a way, I think it's fair to say that the 1920s were a period of of general amity and, and conciliation throughout the world, throughout the world. But the 1930s was when the immediate turn inward, both on our part and on the part of Germany, Italy, Japan, Eastern Europe, France, and others occurred, but not in Britain and not in the United States. We clung to the same kind of principles that guided us going back to the uh, neutrality address by George Washington. It wasn't until the 37 Brussels Conference became a funeral, and wasn't until the gradual evolution of our sanctions policy versus the influence of the army in, in, Japan, in, in Japan society that led to the Pearl Harbor attack. So basically, you have a very confused and inconsistent history prior to Pearl Harbor. And it only became into the months immediately, the weeks immediately prior to the attack, that we could use the word strongly probable and maybe inevitable. Maybe it was inevitable sometime, if not in 41, maybe in 51. I don't know. The last ditch chance for peace, and Feist and others are quick to point this out occurred when the Prime Minister of Japan, Prince Koyone, proposed a summit in October, two months before the attack, 
in Honolulu or somewhere else in the Pacific between Key and Roosevelt. That is at the highest levels. Sort of like a Munich. I mean, I, I'm not trying to presuppose its results, but the last ditch efforts at the highest levels of government to form some kind of a postponement, a six-month moratorium, or some kind of a, a gesture between the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Japan. Roosevelt did not do it. I can quote you the reasons why he didn't he, he, he didn't think it was appropriate. He didn't think it would send the right message. He, he thought it may be a propaganda stunt or a... a, a but he, he refused to sign He had many summits from Churchill, including the Atlantic Charter, but that was consistent with our belief that he wouldn't meet with the Prime Minister of Japan. And I think at the end of that, and uh, with the... Um, the the uh, incapacity of the two, the two heads of state to meet in October, I'd say the die was cast. Uh, I had all these ideas of reading two volumes, notes and quotations and so forth, but they would support the thesis that I've advanced about the importance of the background and uh, the reasons why, and I, I still hold to the belief that China was the reason. And the clash of cultures was the uh, supporting uh, theoretical backgrounds which made them behave as they did. But it's interesting to know how different uh, the results uh, uh, were. They went through various stages of what you might call world view. Both societies came from isolation uh, backgrounds. Uh, the United States had a isolationist foreign policy, which was broken by Pearl Harbor, not by World War One. The Japanese were isolated until 1853, and it's so ironic how these societies can reverse their entire outlook, their entire human understanding, so abruptly. There have been no societies since. 1945 that once were the epitome of militaristic and fascistic countries that have abandoned that entire uh, philosophic philosophy of life as Japan and Germany since 45. Uh, that's one of the reasons why Trump's statements statement about that last summer was so uh, alarming. Uh, even if he's thinking out loud, but that's really kind of dangerous. You know? Uh, to because you know going from a, a a society whose fixed object was to be dominant militaristically in Asia by force of arms and by abject cruelty to a society that was economically dominant and completely divorced from any kind of strategic involvement anywhere for 70 years, is really one of the most phenomenal uh, manifestations of the 20th century. And 21st, but I don't know what will happen in the future. But uh, let me close. Uh, would you like to ask a number of questions or to, uh, well, maybe just close, but I want to make sure that we can 
take up our 20 minutes at least or more because I want to enter into uh, conversations I, I, I painted a very broad picture but in the time allotted in, in the time period involved historically you know this could be a whole course but my own interpretation of the uh, well I don't think it's an interpretation I think it's very very apparent not obvious as to why the uh, the uh, societies and the American society which was already very much anti-Japanese before Pearl Harbor was not so much that Japan sought colonies to support its population. But the United States, by its political culture, is by definition opposed to colonization. By theoretical. Never mind the Philippines, there's a question. And they, they became independent in 40 years or so. The United States could live with the rest of the world dominated by Europe. You know, Japan saw the great East Asian co-prosperity sphere, or it's called a place in the sun. So where's the sun? What is the sun? Well, North, Northern Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa are all controlled by Europe. France, England, Germany, Portugal and Spain once controlled all of uh, Latin America and uh, France controlled all of South America, uh, China, British controlled Malaya. The Americans uh, uh, expressed the assertion of domination in the Western Hemisphere by the Monroe Doctrine. The world was controlled by the great powers. Japan wanted a place there. Not apologize, but that's the way they wanted a place. I mean, it's what they call it, a place in the sun. Greater East Asian co-prosperity No, within the context of the time, what's wrong with that? The entire world had been doing that since time began. What I think created the animosity so deeply within the American public is the way that they did it. The um, abject cruelty of the Japanese army and the uh, the, the time death line the rape of Nanking in 1937, which was uh, chronicled by a book just recently, a bestseller book by a Chinese American named Iris, The Rape of Nanking. The uh, coincident with Pearl Harbor itself, uh, and the, the, the bombing of uh, Chinese cities in the 30s and so forth, they were bombing of of English cities during the First World War, but they were marginal. A few people killed. This was widespread. Came to give the Japanese profile, the personality of the people, a symbol and a reality of the kind of cruelty that was unmatched, but it was unknown, at least, to the American public. And didn't, they didn't care if the French were cruel in Vietnam or something. It was the Japanese that got this particular designation. I think that's what, I don't think it was just a mere uh, idea of going overseas, but the way they did it was so uh, 
so counter to the American culture, people will say that's a contradiction in reality. I don't care, because the, 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 the culture was based upon theoretical concepts, not necessarily evidence, okay? I don't care. So that was the, the lesson uh, that the Americans took from them, and Pearl Harbor inflamed it beyond, beyond any hope. Even though Pearl Harbor was a rage, 9-11, you know, was at the same time, in a tactical sense. So, if, if you want to have an even the most recent uh, example of that, read the book called Unbroken by uh, a lady, he lives right near here, I don't know her name, who came into a movie, I don't know, I forget her name. Laura Hallibrand. What's her first name? Laura. Yes. She wrote Sea Biscuit. And she has a, a disease that doesn't allow her to get out of the house. And she writes all these bestsellers. I'm just amazed. And she's got some kind of a disease. She has to do all work from home. And Unbroken is an example of what I just talked about. The story of an uh, American uh, serviceman who spent years in a Japanese concentration camp. He just died recently, around 100 years old. He was a uh, Olympic diver too, by the way. So that was it. Uh, in summation, we have 15 minutes left. Uh, I have a book here that I also reviewed, which I didn't use, but uh, just to give you the range of opinion of how Americans view the behavior of their diplomats leading up to Pearl Harbor. This was a, a book edited by Robert Dalek, who's a very prominent historian of American diplomacy. And in the book, he has a section of, called The Origins of War with Japan. And to give you the range of opinion, which I, I couldn't possibly uh, produce in this time frame, he has an article by Herbert Feist, whom I've already mentioned, American policy is restrained and real realistic. Restrained and realistic. Another article, these authors will tell me unknown to anybody, I would mention that American policy is intentionally provocative. Another one, American policy unintentionally provocative. Pearl Harbor, by the fourth article, Washington is to blame for how we, especially in freezing the assets in July, how we push Japan by our inactivity and our kind of uh, coercive and stumbling diplomacy. And the best article is by Roberto Volstetter, who is the wife, late wife of Albert Volstetter, the great leader of weapons strategist. Pearl Harbor, a failure to anticipate. This article and this book that she wrote in 1962 is the best anecdote to people that might think that the whole attack was the product of conspirational designs to deliberately indict, induce Japan into starting a war so that we could fulfill Franklin Roosevelt's earnest desire to save Britain you know, and to get into the world war. But there was no possibility of the United States in fighting Hitler just after Pearl Harbor but four days later, we had no choice. Because the actual event that brought America out of its isolationist shell 
was not necessarily Pearl Harbor. We could have fought Japan for a few years and then gone back, like we did in 1919. But both Hitler and Mussolini, prior with, with assurances given prior to, to Japan, declare war in the United States on December 11th. I don't think the Congress would ever have endorsed the war against Germany while the Navy was fighting in the Pacific. So I don't subscribe to the conspiracy theories. I think it's a matter of confusion and blunder, but I think it's a, a reflection of the general pattern of the way wars occur. Now, I don't have to leave at 3.30, but um, that was the proposed time. But I would like to open it up to, uh, to all of you uh, to see uh, what your opinion is or yes and facts that I have omitted and so forth. I'm sorry, it, it didn't seem to be too well organized, but um, I wanted to paint a picture. It's so confusing and, and deep that it's very hard to summarize. And I'm not good at summarizing. So I'd like to I'd welcome uh, your, uh, your comments and questions. If you have any, I hope you do. I, I just wanted to know, um, there's a perspective of, I want to say, after Pearl Harbor, like April 3rd, MLK, Martin Luther died. I'm sorry, I can't hear that well. I want to say, like, April 3rd, like, after Pearl Harbor. Um, April 3rd, 1942? He spoke out about the war. He spoke out about um, him just ultimately disagreeing with the U.S. stance. In the war. Mm, I'm so not hearing you very well. You're saying that in April. Question is, yeah, my question is that an African American civil rights leader, Martin Luther King himself, was killed April 3rd for speaking out against the U.S.'s military agenda in the war. What can we learn from um, civil rights leaders, I would say contemporarily, who might have, just like MLK, disagreed with the war in Iraq? We have right now Iraq, Iran, North Korea, the acts of evil, weapons of mass destruction. So what can we do as a nation state? Do we have a leading voice who wants to take to the civil rights and say, speak out against the disagreement of what's going on in Iraq? And maybe their life won't be violent. Who, who, who was killed in April? Uh, Mark Luther he was just a civil rights leader. He spoke out against civil war. And he got. Well, I, 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 I can't hear you because I don't have many ears. You're speaking well, but what's his name? His name was just we use the acronym MLK. He just stands for Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was his name. Yeah, but the question is today. He was killed in '68. Yeah, but the question is today. Huh? That was Martin Luther King Jr. His father was killed in April. Yeah, but the question is, what can we learn from the war that we're in right now in Iraq? In Iran. North Korea, the acts of evil, we have this whole fear of weapons of mass destruction. Um, and my point is that should we take a public stance and say someone needs to come out and speak against the U.S.'s role in Iraq, we disagree with the war, and what can we learn from the war that we are now currently trying to resolve in Iraq? We have Pearl Harbor, World War II, look at the, I guess, government's agenda of what they will do in the global community. And why we're now still having to resolve this problem before we have ourselves in Iraq. So really, what can we learn from history as far as Pearl Harbor and the war that we're in now, hopefully not going towards World War III? So it seems like the U.S. continues to find itself going to war. Wow. I wrote a book years ago 
I'll give you a copy of what what over called uh, What's Behind the Anti-War Movement? It's a history of American uh, peace movements. And uh, history of American anti-war involvement. So it's a little paperback. My answer would be in that book. I'll give you the book. But how to uh, summarize a concise answer to the broad question, broad-based question that you ask is that we're not going to learn anything. Nothing. I mean, the idea that societies quote-unquote learn and apply the knowledge that they've accumulated so they won't have again is ridiculous. I don't know any evidence that it's ever occurred. I mean, to say that um, somebody would uh, stand up and oppose the war in Iraq because Pearl Harbor is a historical stretch that, that doesn't work. It's not even relevant. So that's the question. Why are we kind of still going towards war? Why is the U.S. having a military agenda in Iraq? We've already come out the war. We've already learned what the U.S. military capability was based on history. And here we are, instead of trying to learn from your perspective, what do you think you tell us about war and the U.S. role in war, whether it's World War II, and now a war that we are still involved in in Iraq? And maybe the current administration, you can talk about the current administration's agenda in the war in Iraq. And trying to get to the genesis of the question. You want to know if there's anything that has been learned and applied? The answer is no and hell no. Do you want to know if there's lessons that I would advise that the society can come up with? I wouldn't even try. Uh, in terms of speaking out against wars, every war has been accompanied by protest by one form or the other. I mean, I don't believe that you're, you believe, I don't believe that you think that the uh, war on terror has not been accompanied by widespread protests. It's been protested in and out of government. <laughs> One of the main themes of the crazy campaign that he just went through was whether or not Trump was for or against the Iraq war. He said he was against it. He said he was for it. It's almost kind of opera. Uh, the, I, I, don't, I don't know if there's anything that I can say uh, in response. I, I don't really have a firm grip on what the, uh, the question is. Have, have we learned Learn what? Learn well, not right, to right, protest or right, learn right, to accept right, wars? I like Pearl Harbor. I think it's a really important day in American history. We should never forget Pearl Harbor. And we should always remember. I agree. I think I can agree with that. Yeah, but I have I have a ritual too. Yeah, what? We can remember Pearl Harbor significant in American history, but I haven't lived through World War II. Well, I lived through it, but I don't remember much of it. I don't think in terms of the second empirical uh, dialectic that you actually apply scientifically the things that have occurred to you in the past. I, 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 can't, I can't fathom any society ever. Well, societies do do that. For example, I mentioned before the complete uh, abrupt turnabout of both Japan and Germany after World War uh, two and the complete basically turnabout of Europe, which was the center of like hundreds of wars throughout history since 1945. That's been 70 years without a single war. And so, in terms of saying, did, did a society or a, 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 a continent take a lesson 
Well, yeah, but uh, it took the world's greatest war in history to finally solidify that that effort, which produced a unity of Europe, the European Union, until last June. I don't know what the results of that will be. But I certainly think that the repercussions of the Second World War had a profound effect upon the participants in it. Uh, I think that somebody uh, who would uh, take a look at Japanese society today could not help but conclude this is probably this is probably a better example for the question that you were attempting. Um, would be that society of the society of Japan is probably the prime example of a country that has applied the lessons of its past and prospered from it. I think so. Don't you? Well, I, I think it's a really good perspective. I want to honor those who have fought in World War II. See what I hear you saying that we're not going to see the United States in World War III. So I, I definitely respect your perspective. I think it's a great history lesson, and I think that will keep the United States out of going to war for a third time. I'll talk to you in a few years. Yes, sir. Thanks for the I'm from Japan, and you're from Japan. Yeah. And thank you. Well, thanks, thanks for the $50 billion that you're going to give oh, to us. Yeah. Thank you very much. Can you have some for the Institute of World Politics? See that left over? <laughs> that was on the news today, you know? Yeah. Yeah, uh, Mike, to take away from the talk is that um, the United States and Japan are in a really unique relationship. But as like I said, um, you, you can uh, uh, transform from isolationism to internationalism so that States in 1983 and then following Paul Hopper and the United States uh, changed its attitude to the international right. So, and then this year, uh, last week I think, Army? Uh, Prime Minister Abe uh, announced that uh, he will visit uh, Paul Hopper in December 26 and 27. He was going to visit Pearl Harbor? Yeah. Okay. And also, um, President Obama came to Hiroshima May. He went to Hiroshima. Is he going to go to Hawaii December 2 also? Who? Obama. Uh, Is he going there? Well, he's going to go. Okay. Good. What's your question? Yeah. Uh, my question is that uh, I really appreciate that. If you could share your view on this kind of history of uh, the visits of both countries, Hiroshima and Obama. My opinion on the visits? Yeah. I'm in favor of them. And can you, I guess, um, like, recall any implications from this visit? What? Can, can you get some uh, implications, history, history from implications from this visit, or? One of the, okay, one of the more remarkable aspects of the 20th century is how quickly the warring parties who waged the worst war in the history of mankind. I ask this question in my class all the time. They don't know the answer. Nobody really knows it. It goes throughout. But uh, we think that we got trouble today. And this is the worst time in human history, and that uh, we can't. Well, it, well the, the world is unstable. So what? Yeah, right. That's news. Uh, how many people were killed in World War II? All people, men, women, and children, all fronts: Africa, Asia, Latin America. I don't know the number. How would you take a guess? Guess. Yeah. Fifty-one. Uh, Fifty-one. Well. 
Maybe maybe some maybe uh, in October of 1940, 50,000. How many people killed World War II? What's the estimates? It's not scientific. It's a generality of, of a combination of opinions. The general consensus of the number of people, human beings, killed between September 1st, 39, September 2nd, 45, six years and a day of the Second World War, an interruption in human history. Six, six years and a day, how many were killed? 76 million. That's, that's, that's more than anything that before that ever occurred. Among people with technology and radios and automobiles and everything, so we're pretty sophisticated people. Now, some people say until the Hun killed more. I don't know. I think mean, 76, so I did this and we did it daily. It's 35,000 people killed every day. Every day. <laughs> in the world, they signed the peace treaty in the USS Missouri and went about its business and they turned past one into a Cold War. Of course, the world only had 2.6 billion people. Now they have three times that many. The more. But only 2 billion people and 76 million killed? I don't know how many Japanese were killed. You know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, and by the fire bombs and by the soldiers, I don't know. A hell of a lot more than were Americans. The Japanese had only half the population or less than that. But Americans had 120 million people and we had uh, about 415,000 415, men killed. Most men. There were no attacks on, on American cities. That's, that's only 1% of the world's reality. But yet, coming out of it, it's one of the more remarkable aspects of history, how the societies of Germany, and I'm talking about Japan especially today, came together to solidify after the end of this horrendous, unprecedented disruption of the globe. And Japan and America have since, and Japan and Western Germany, and all of Angela Merkel, all of Germany, just a few years after, you know, the surrender Germany in May, 45, uh, West Germany, with Conrad Adenauer as its chancellor, was the closest American ally on the continent. On the continent. Britain will never be the place. And Japan became our closest ally in, the, in Asia. And uh, the country that we had sacrificed so much for and had upheld its integrity, at least theoretically, turned to be our biggest enemy in Asia. And that turned around again in 72. And these are just unbelievable. But the, I, the relationship between Japanese people and the American people was so fierce and so horrible in the war, and it's become so personally cordial in the years since. It's, uh, it's, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, people look at divorce, hate each other, you know, and the, not the societies. And the engineer, of the Second World War and Pearl Harbor, uh, the Emperor, he was, you know, he he had to rubber stamp it all. Tojo, it's not that Tojo, the Emperor Tojo was the Prime Minister. He, he was the one who brought Pearl Harbor. He became Prime Minister in October, and two months later, was 
Um, the emperor came to this country in 1976, and he had a parade with the President of the United States, and I damn applaud, I remember who it was. It was either Ford or Carter. I think it was Jerry Ford. One of the two, it could be in it. And they paraded the, the Emperor of Japan down Pennsylvania Avenue three decades after Pearl Harbor. And now we're getting $50 billion. Thanks very much. It's just, it's incredible. This is a, this is a, a pillar of American society. And I think, you know, people like... Uh, I hope there's some other comments or questions. Yes, sir. Yep. Uh, I have a, a European perspective. European? I have a European perspective if I'm Swedish. You're Swedish? I, I, I'm Swedish, yes. Oh. And uh, one thing that always interests me, uh, reading about American diplomacy and also military thinking, is that as one can presume, you presume that other people are like you too much perhaps. <laughs> if we apply now that you have two geopolitical great powers that might be possible enemies or competitors, Russia and China, and uh, this is a situation similar to what happened to England uh, about 1900 when they found that the old enemy was France, and now they had another geopolitical competitor, the new Imperial Germany, that was building a huge uh, navy. And uh, um, it would be interesting to see who you apply, the, uh, you, think you should apply the experience of Pearl Harbor for the coming eventual conflict with the new rivals that are not Japan, but it might be. China. So, the question is to how how would I apply the Pearl Harbor experience? Yeah, the, exp the experience and the memory of Pearl Harbor for the future conflict. We know that Japan attacked China '84. They attacked they attacked China all the time. What? They attacked China all the time. Yeah, I mean, Pearl was a Russian outpost in China. Huh? Yes, so we know Japan always attacked without warning. Yeah. And the uh, uh, Chinese, if they would attack anything, I think they would use the same way of thinking. They would attack without warning. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they. Why would they warn anybody? I wouldn't. Uh, uh, I, 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 I tried to address this in the background points that I made to the Pearl Harbor uh, talk. Uh, the, the culmination of the uh, relationships between the two societies, I thought I'd mention, and I want to emphasize now, constitutes a rather normal model of international political relations between societies. Given the nature of international politics being anarchy, without any superstructure, states being left to their own devices, then all 
models of international politics before and since have that similarity between war and peace. And it can culminate in an attack. It can culminate in a resolution on occasion. And it can culminate in war. I don't know how to answer that better, but to say that the essential nature of the political system of the world that produced Pearl Harbor has not undergone such a fundamental change as to render any future Pearl Harbors out of the question. In other words, the political system of the world has remained essentially the same even though the participants change periodically. We, we defended China for half a century. Then we became the bitter antagonists of China. Then we were allied with China, with the China card, Dixon and Kissinger in 72. Now we find ourselves in a never-never land between the two societies, which is neither war nor peace. Not surprising. It's all the same when you really come down to it. You're asking a question about the international system. And my answer is that it's essentially the same. And I don't care if it's, Admiral, if it's General Tojo or Yamamoto or the leader of China, whose name I don't even know. But we're going to get a new, new ambassador to uh, China who's going to go through a diplomatic, you know, uh, tightrope. It's called tight. Uh, diplomatic uh, activity. It, it's the same. It's, it, sometimes it gets rather tiresome. I mean, yeah. yes. Um, you mentioned that um, Hitler was shocked at um, who was uh, Adolf Hitler. He was what? You mentioned that he was um, surprised at the attack on Pearl Harbor. I, I read that. Yeah. yeah. Um, the rest of Japanese and, and Nazi Germany, <coughs> their members of the same pact, did not share in uh, a lot of the secret uh, plans and activities. Um, what was his reaction to the attack? What was the reaction of the German high command? And why did that end up resulting in Germany's declaration of war a few days later? What was the thinking behind that? Well, it, it has to do with Nazi ideology and Nazis' uh, opinion about uh, their, their role in the world. Uh, Hitler uh, made a unilateral diplomatic, uh, I, I'm not sure, I'm a little bit fuzzy on the diplomatic background, assurance that uh, he would uh, maintain adherence to the tripartite pact between Germany, Italy, and Japan and attack America uh, if uh, America was going to war with uh, Japan. If America did go to war with Japan, he, he did just that. But it, it's very difficult to come up with a rational explanation of Adolf Hitler's uh, mentality and his role in world politics. I, I mean, just, just think of the year 1941. We think that Pearl Harbor was the single event of the war. Barbarossa? Yeah. Adolf Hitler 
in Germany with the most powerful military maybe ever produced by any country in the, in the history of the globe, declared war on the Soviet Union in June. And six months later, he declared war on the United States of America, the two superpowers of the rest of the, rest of the century. Hitler declared war on both of them within a six-month period. That is not strategic brilliance. The same Hitler that couldn't invade Britain, it was 26 miles away across the English Channel, declared war on the United States. I think the answer fundamentally is not whether or not he did it because he signed the pact and so forth. I think Hitler did it because he was an irrational uh, man who probably was psychologically uh, uh, so, so absorbed with his own ideological baggage that he, he could not react, react or, or behave in a rational sense. Who the hell would argue that he has to declare war on, on an isolationist country that's absorbed with Japan when he couldn't even uh, cross the English Channel? It, it's hard to explain crazy people. <laughs> that's my answer. Yes. Uh, yeah, the best of my knowledge, after looking at a series on television, there was some intelligence that uh, Admiral Kimmel and Gen General Short did not have ahead of time. Some of it, I think, might have been political intelligence, like uh, how the Japanese diplomats were acting. But um, can you give me a, 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 an idea of what intelligence might have been withheld that, that would have been valuable to Kimmel and Short? Because you mentioned the planes, the way the planes were parked to, to prevent sabotage. But, but, you know, they, they could be bombed, but those planes would have been in the air, the ships would have been out sea, they'd been battle ready, obviously, if, if they'd had just a few hours warning as to the attacks. And, and can, can, we, can we coordinate both the, the political intelligence and the, and the military intelligence uh, and, 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 and get some clues that way as, as to whether an pending attack might be coming? Uh. I don't, I'm not sure that I can answer that satisfactorily. The idea of the intelligence field and the lack of uh, forwarding important intelligence is so overwhelmingly confusing and so uh, deep that it's very, very difficult to uh, summarize adequately the uh, hundreds and hundreds of messages that were sent out all over the globe, which ones were important, which ones were held back, which ones were relevant, even afterwards. It's true that both, the, both Kimmel, an admiral, and uh, his general short did not receive uh, warnings that war was imminent. But it's, it's generally concluded that the notion of withholding or submitting this or that intelligence signal from this or that global agency, this is the version that I, I put my most trust in by Roberto Walsetter, uh, is probably not sufficient to have uh, prevented the attack. Uh, the, I, I, let me take a look and maybe I can summarize an answer from Roberto Volstetter's uh, 
conclusion. That may satisfy you because I can't do this myself. I don't have the uh, the the depth of knowledge. And I don't think anybody except her really does. Um, let me see. So we had intercepted the Japanese codes with our system called MAGIC. Bear with me. Maybe I'll just give you the book. So this is how she concludes. I don't know if you'll find this to be an adequate answer or not. She goes through, uh, in this particular uh, excerpt from her book of 1962, which is considered to be the definitive explanation of the failure to be adequately warned in all important sectors, from the president on down to the commanders in the field, to Admiral Kimmel, who was a commander in chief, to all these things, there was a breakdown, a breakdown and a, a whole series of omissions and commissions that is, is attempted to be explained through conspiracy, but most people, including here, explain all of these things through uh, ignorance and uh, immaturity and confusion and the entire breakdown of an intelligence system. That is the general consensus. There's not a single reference, historically speaking, that has rendered the President and his closest advisors, General Marshall, Secretary of War Stinson, with a smoking gun. That is to say, they had the clear understanding that Pearl Harbor was going to be attacked at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning the 7th. That doesn't exist. You know how many studies were done in the aftermath of the attack? Ten. Ten full-time studies going back to the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbor and then through the period of the war, immediately after the war, and as late as the 1990s. One study done by the U.S. Congress after the war 1945, went on for about six months. It produced itself with 39 printed volumes of testimony with over 10 million words. This was one study out of 10. And after the entire, this is, I'm not going to read 39 volumes to talk for an hour and a half, I tell you that. After all the nine or 10 studies that were done over a period of time, there is no single reference to the existence of a deliberate intention by Roosevelt to sacrifice his entire Navy in a few hours to engage in America in a war, which would not be inevitable that it would be a war against Hitler either, because I said Hitler declared war on the United States. Whoever could have known that? Let me just say, she talks, and this is the conclusion of her assessment. She died in 2007. She talks about all the different confusions, limitations, liabilities, overlap, rivalry between the Army and Navy, who had different perceptions of what should be done. She says, in view of all these limitations to perception and communication, this is the fact, uh, this is the fact, 
of surprise at Pearl Harbor. But really, why so surprising? Even with these limitations, which she had preceded in her article, recognize there remains the step between perception and action. Let us assume that the first hurdle has been crossed, colon, an available signal has been perceived as an indication of imminent danger. Then how do we resolve the next questions? What specific danger is the signal trying to communicate? And what specific action and preparation should follow? Let me see. On November 27th, General MacArthur had received a war warning. He was in the Philippines, very similar to the one received by General Short in Honolulu. A war warning received. MacArthur's response, this is the Commander-in-Chief of all American forces and parties in Manila, had been promptly translated into orders designed to protect his bombers from possible air attack from Formosa land bases. We were, Japanese had bases in Formosa. They had governed Formosa, which is Taiwan, since 1895. But the orders were carried out very slowly. By December 8th, Philippine time, only half of the bombers ordered to the south had left the Manila area, and reconnaissance over Formosa had not been undertaken. To receive the warning, this is one little, little example. MacArthur was in the Manila. We see the same order that Honolulu had received, General Kirk. The war was imminent. But that's what she said. There's a perception. But what do you do? What do you do? And no reconnaissance over Formosa had been undertaken. There was no sense of urgency in preparing for a Japanese air attack, partly because our intelligence estimates had calculated that the Japanese aircraft did not have sufficient range to bomb Manila from Formosa. So the Japanese, he thought, the Japanese planes from Formosa, which is what he thought the war was going to be, couldn't reach the Philippines. So the, the point is that all the cables, the thousands of cables that came from all over, were contradictory, confusing, and not definitive. But even if they were a little bit better, how does that particular bit of information, the perception, translate into intelligent action? Even General MacArthur had no estimate of what the hell was going on. I, I don't think, I can't unravel this crossword puzzle adequately. I can just sort of tell you the general consensus of historical opinion is that the result, the, 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 the effect of Pearl Harbor was the result of blunder, ignorance, lack of precise intelligence, lack of, uh, of, of, uh, of a brilliant telescope to, to foresee the future. It was, in, in, in a way, that is a better explanation, because I studied World War I, which is much more my my particular uh, specialty in my classes. And that's the way World War I was stumbled into it. One author calls it uh, sleepwalkers. They were sleepwalkers and they all blundered into war. I think that's how wars 
that, that, that's the, as opposed to the calculated effort of both sides to do exactly and precisely what they intend to do. They're so human. And human frailty is the best explanation rather than conspiration behind the scenes and deliberate manipulation. I don't know if that, I don't know. The answer is not complete, but the picture is probably accurate. All right, thanks for coming. Happy holiday. I think you have to leave a little early. Well, not, I don't have to. Yes. Well, apart from this the, is going to have to be the last question. Just we have to set up. Well, we have another event. Apart from the confusion about the telegram, the intelligence, what's meant by a war warning, weren't there hard and fast assumptions that the Japanese would not attack? San Francisco or Pearl Harbor, that the attack would be closer to the Japanese home islands? Yes. Uh, I mean, I have quotes here, but I won't belabor it um, because we have to get out. But that is, that, is, that is a truism. That is a truism. One of the reasons why they were so comfortable with the battleships lined up as targets, and the airplanes as well, I, the figures of of the airplanes that were uh, destroyed is somewhere in the hundreds, hundreds of And the battleships are what was called battleship row, is that they never expected that the uh, Japanese would have the kind of audacity to strike at the heart, the, 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 to use the dagger with the heart. And they, they felt it would be overreached. It would be more logical according to the estimates that preceded the event, for them to attack the colonial holdings of the European powers because you had a choice. Are you going to try to knock out the American Navy or are you going to try to uh, absorb places that are going to be more beneficial to you in regards to resources like rubber and oil and scrap iron? That's what they needed. So they thought the logical uh, movement of the Japanese military would be uh, Southeast Asia and and the Dutch East Indies. That's what they needed, and and that's where they thought that they knew the war was imminent immediately before Pearl Harbor. That's the general consensus, but they weren't certain where. And the idea that Hawaii was the target and Pearl Harbor was the target. I would say startled everybody. Roosevelt was having lunch with his family at the time. General Marshall was out riding horses in Fort Myer. They all had to be called back into the White House. It, it caught everybody by surprise. The idea that it was done deliberately and as a, uh, a conscious and engineered effort really exceeds human capacity. Not only does it see, exceed human capacity for the government to do that, but it would brand one of America's, or generally conceived of the America's greatest president as a great traitor, in, in the most treasonous act uh, since Benedict uh, Arnold to actually destroy your navy uh, for your private plans, which was basically opposed by the general population. Uh, the Senate and the House were isolationists. And it, to this day, after all the studies, there is yet to appear conclusive evidence to that effect. That's why most 
they say America's responsible for Pearl Harbor mostly by a rather than calculation by political culture, the attitude, isolation of sentiment, and just plain uh, ignorance and omission and commission. I think the word wonder is more appropriate than calculation. It's not in common, was it not repeated 15 years ago? I mean, it happened again. There are people who can who believe that 9-11 was an artificial event conspired by uh, rats in the closet that wired the, uh, the Twin Towers in New York for months beforehand. They exist. And what happens? You know, even the election is supposed to be rigged, right?